Acts chapter 16 starts off with a new direction for cities that Paul and uh, Paul had previously visited. But Paul sets out now with a new team. Previously, as we ended Acts chapter 15, we see that uh, the last title of that section there, perhaps in your Bibles, uh, as mine says, is Paul and Barnabas separate. At one point, Paul and Barnabas were ministering together. They were going city to city, acting as a mission team. They went out on this first missionary journey to help people meet Jesus, to share the gospel of Christ. And there came a point where they were going to go out on their second missionary journey, but they end up separating over uh, taking a specific person. This person is uh, John Mark the writer of the Gospel of Mark, and Paul says, I didn't really want to take him because on our first missionary journey, we brought him, and then he left early. Uh, We don't really know what the reason was. Maybe he got homesick. Maybe there was something going on, but he was like, Paul was like, I can't deal with like John Mark here. He was a little bit of a distraction, so I don't really trust him. Now, Barnabas is like, no, we should definitely bring him, and it leads to this uh, division uh, between these two groups. Paul goes his own way, and he decides, I'm going to take Silas. I'm going to take a man who was from the church in Jerusalem, uh, who was a part of the the group that was uh, sent from the council in Jerusalem to go back to Antioch to share the results of this council regarding circumcision. Uh, And then uh, Barnabas here, he uh, decides that he's going to go with John Mark. Now, they go off, and they both Uh, go on this mission. And now we return to a section in chapter 16 where Paul and Silas are making their way and they're tracking through some of the previous cities. They've wanted to revisit to see how things are going, and they are going to pick up another person on their missions team, a young man by the name of Timothy. And so we come to our text this morning, and we see that Paul's heart is to continue uh, ministering in the cities that he has previously ministered in. If you look at verse 1, he lists these cities for us. Paul came also to Derby and Lystra. Now, these were cities that he had visited previously. He uh, didn't get a chance to go back over these cities on the last missionary journey. It was, it was uh, Barnabas whom, and John Mark who made their way back through this route and checked on these cities. And Paul said, you know, I'm going to circle back and I'm going to check on them for myself. I'm going to see how things are going. But the reason that he wanted to go back and do this is because uh, he had this um, work in establishing these cities. He cared for them. He loved them. He wanted to be, he, he was invested in them. And so on this first missionary journey, he made his way there. If you uh, recall, the last time that Paul was in Lystra, him and Barnabas roll up, and, and upon their entrance into the city, like the people of the city are, are blown away, and they have this interaction, which is a bit strange, because they first worship Paul and Barnabas as a god. They're like, oh, Zeus and Hermes, they're, they're here, they're among us, and like they're trying to throw these parties for them and have this celebration, and like people from like the temple of Zeus are coming out, and they're trying to uh, like throw this big party and parade for them. Uh, The reason for this we saw was because in their history there in this uh, city, there was a legend that Zeus and and Hermes once came to the city and uh, the people of the city rejected them, but there was an old elderly couple who took them in and took care of them, and so those two were were made to be like these, uh, it, it said that they were made to be like these 
religious leaders in this temple, but the rest of the people of the city were, were destroyed by Zeus and Hermes. This, and so the, the people were like, we're not making this mistake a second time. They see Paul and Barnabas come in and they're like, we gotta, we gotta make sure that uh, you know, we're rightly recognizing them. And meanwhile, Paul and Barnabas are like, no, we're just, we're just regular men. We are, we are not like these uh, people who you say that we are. And so they go from worshiping Paul and Barnabas to trying to kill them by stoning them with rocks. It goes from a complete extreme of like, oh, you guys are gods, to like, no, we're going to kill you. Uh, that this was the last experience that Paul and Barnabas had in the city of Derby, and this uh, experience was in Lystra. And so Paul leaves after uh, you know, having this group wanting to make an attempt on his life. He, he gets out of there. And he has this concern for the church. He wants to see them grow. He wants to see them be established in the faith. And he's not had a chance to get back to that city. But we see that the results of Paul's faith, his genuine character, his genuine nature, his raw love for Christ, his care and concern to join in the mission that God has sent him on, to help people meet Jesus, to see uh, the, the grace of God, this example that Paul has brought, it has left just a, a resounding presence there in the city of Lystra. This message of the gospel resonates with one man that we find in our story particularly uh, named Timothy. It's Paul's example there, his ability to live for Christ, to live in such a way that his example there echoes into the following days and weeks and years. His example of faith in the midst of opposition. Faith in the midst of difficulty. The ability to suffer well when things are hard. That example that the people of this city witnessed it laid a foundation for those in that city, even though Paul was not there, that his example was still there. And I think that this is what you and I have to realize. As believers, if you trust in Christ for salvation, if you consider yourself to be a Christian, you ought to be living your life in a way, whereas if those people in your lives, when you're gone, your example is going to be leaving a mark, a stain upon that spot. So whenever people come to that circumstance in their life, when they come to that place or position that they can remember, this is how, this is how so-and-so acted. This is, this is the way that they would respond. This is the way that, that they would position themselves. See, Jesus often did this, and he highlighted it. He highlighted it for the people who followed him. It, it, there are, are uh, in Scripture, we find in the, in the book of Matthew, often in the Sermon on the Mount, and in other places where Jesus speaks, where he will say, the teachers of the law have said to you this, but I say to you. He gives a moment, an opportunity. He takes every opportunity that he has to lay a new course, to set a new foundation, to leave a new mark. So when people are considering an idea or a perspective or they're going to make a decision, that they're going to say, well, the common thinking is this, but, but Jesus said this, and that's, that's still sticking in my mind. I've got to mull that over a little bit. I've got to consider what Jesus has to say. 
what Jesus wants to do in my life. And so our lives ought to be examples in that same way, where we are making decisions, we are living in a way that is strategically patterned after Christ so that when we have left a position, there are shoes to fill. And they, they, are, they are specifically leaving that mark of Christ upon that place. And that no one can come and do anything else there unless it follows in the mold of Christ. We want people to see Jesus. We want people to see how much freedom Christ brings. This is the message of the gospel. Christ came not to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't come with, to be entitled and to say, I demand these things, although he did, but willingly put off his own glory, his own rights for the sake of those who are poor, who are less fortunate for those who are in sin. He who knew no sin made himself sin so that in him we might find the righteousness of God. And so it is our desire to live in such a way that people see Christ clearly. We'll get to an example of that in just a moment. But we want to remember, we need to build a legacy. We need to build a foundation that inspires people to pursue Christ. Now we come to this man, Timothy. He's described as a disciple first. This means he's a Christian man. He has trusted in Christ for his salvation. We're told uh, in verse 2 that he's well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra. And Iconium. This means that Timothy is not only a Christian, not only does do his has he made this confession with his mouth, but that other people see it and they bear witness and they say, Yes, you are walking the walk. Your your character is lining up with what you are saying. Your actions and your words match. This is the first way that we ought to be if we are going to live in a way where we leave the mark of Christ. We have to let our yes be yes and our no be no. We have to be faithful to do what we say we're going to do. Because Jesus was always faithful. And this is what Jesus would have done for us. Again and again, whatever he said he would do, he did it. Even if it cost him. Often it cost him. This is an example of what it means to live in a way that you leave this mark. Proven character. We want to be displaying the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. That ought to be on display. Your life is going to show evidence of Christ when you follow Jesus. Everyone around will be able to know, like, yes, it's clear that you are in a relationship with Christ, or no, it is unclear if someone's like, oh, there might be a Christian, it's like, well, it's, it's probably pretty not clear. Like, your life is not showing that fruit of the Spirit. You need to be demonstrating these things. Your actions and your words have to line up if you are going to name the name of Christ. So we're told that Timothy is a disciple. 
The second thing that we get from Luke regarding Timothy is some insight into Timothy's family. We're told that he is the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. So Luke, he gives us some insight here. Uh, he's, Timothy has mixed parents. His mother was a Jewish woman who was a believer. Second Timothy chapter uh, 1 verse 5, uh, Paul is writing to Timothy, and here's what he says. He says, I'm, remember, I, I, excuse me, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. So Timothy's mother is named Eunice. And now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. So Timothy's grandmother and his mother, they were people who lived in this area of Derby and Lystra. They all likely met Christ in Paul's first missionary journey. And the grandmother and the mother passed down this faith to Timothy, discipling him in the ways of the Lord. Uh, and so there's promising progress here that we see in Timothy. And then when we get to the father, he is described simply as Greek. He's not, loop, he's not lumped in there as a believer also. So he likely was, was not a believer uh, but there's this mixed family. We'll get to this all well, that's important in a second. Now, we find in verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, this gets to a point where things start to get a little bit confusing because we just spent all of chapter 15 talking about how like there were these guys who were Jews who were coming in and trying to say like, oh, you have to get circumcised and in order to uh, be a Christian and, uh, you know, essentially saying you have to join this old covenant of the Jewish faith. That's like super important. You've got to do this. And Paul is like, no, like that's not what the that's not what like being in Christ is. We're saved through grace. Uh, and they have this full council on it where the, uh, in chapter 15 where uh, the members of the church and the leaders of the church all gather together and they hash it out and they work through it and they come to the understanding that, that we are saved by grace through faith. It's only Christ's work. You don't need to be circumcised for uh, salvation. It's not a requirement. And so we ought not to compel the Gentiles to become circumcised in order to uh, come to faith in Christ. This is a decision, and they decide, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give a letter to Paul and Silas. You guys are going to go out on the road, and you're going to distribute this, and we're going to send, uh, we're gonna send Silas and uh, another guy called Judas out on the road with them, and they're going to deliver the message verbally. So there's going to be a written message and a verbal message that's delivered. One representative of Paul and Barnabas who had spent time ministering among these churches, and then we have this group who are representatives from the church in Jerusalem representing the broader council. And so they go out, they make this known, and they are heavily behind this trying to fight against the work of these Judaizers who are saying, you've, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to follow the Old, Old Testament laws in order to come to faith in Christ. Now, they're broadly against this. Uh, and then we come to verse 3, and Paul's like, we've got to circumcise Timothy. <laughs> Because this gets real confusing real quick. Why did he just say, like, oh, we don't need to do that? But now he's like, oh, we probably should do this. What's the deal? Is Paul, like, flip-flopping here? Is he getting a little bit wishy-washy? Well, Luke clues us in again by giving us some more info uh, regarding to 
this uh, Timothy's uh, parentage. He clues us in. He says, because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. This is the, the reason why Paul is saying that he needs to be circumcised, because of the Jews who were in the places that they were going to go. They knew about Timothy's father. They knew that he was a Greek. Now, why is this circumcision different? Well, for Timothy, he was someone who was uncircumcised, and he was the son of a mixed marriage. And so to the Jews, although Timothy's father was Greek, he uh, and his mother was Jewish, she was a believer, to the Jews, Timothy would have been recognized, he would have been seen to the Jews in that region as an apostate Jew, that someone who was outrightly rejecting the God of Israel. He, he, was, he would be seen as someone who was not just indifferent, but who was actively against the God of Israel, choosing not to participate in the Old Covenant. And so Paul, the way that he thought about this and the way that he worked this was he thought, we've got to circumcise Timothy if we're going to bring him along because it would have appeared that Paul's like, I also support his apostasy and I also support that Timothy is against the God of Israel. I, by having Timothy as a colleague, it would have not even given Paul access to enter the synagogues. Timothy wouldn't have been able to enter and then Paul wouldn't have been able to enter. So this would have shut down the mission entirely if this does not take place. Now, we know that this is a strategic decision here. He is working or he's making a decision for the sake of the gospel. This is a decision that is uh, brought about voluntarily, and this is a decision that is brought about uh, for the sake of the gospel going forward. This is not a decision that is based upon bringing salvation to Timothy. This is opening doors for greater gospel opportunities. And as, as an example, if you uh, flip over to Galatians chapter 2, I'll give you another contrasting situation. Galatians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. In this instance, in Galatians 2, these same men, the Judaizers, those who are saying you've got to follow the Old Testament laws, you've got to be circumcised, they are trying to compel another man, Titus, to be circumcised. They're saying, oh, he's got to be circumcised in order to be saved. We read in verse, uh, Galatians 2, verse 3, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So, similar situation. He was a Greek. But he is not forced to be circumcised here. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, these are these Judaizers, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So Paul says, these guys, they really wanted Titus to be circumcised so that way he would be a part of uh, the old covenant and he would be brought in and then they would say, okay, yeah, he's okay. 
They were looking at this through the, the lens of salvation for Titus. And, and because that was on the line, Paul's like, we're not even going to yield to that for a moment. We are going to fight against this. We are going to make a strong stand because we're going, we want to say specifically that this is not required for salvation. Keeping the Old Testament laws, keeping these Old Testament rules is not a, a command that we must continue to follow for salvation. So for Timothy now, we see that in this instance, it's not a matter of salvation. There's, this is an entirely voluntary act. There's no pressure in the case for Timothy. There's not any reason that he has to. But rather, it's we will have more open doors if we take this step. This is, this is what it's all about. Looking for hindrances to the gospel going forward and removing those things. For whatever reason, uh, in cultures around the world, there are specific hairstyles that are offensive. There are specific hairstyles that are unacceptable. And I have many friends who have done uh, various short-term and long-term mission opportunities in countries around the world. Uh, I believe one of them is uh, in a specific region in India. Um, I've got a friend who has been ministering there for over 20 years and uh, going on short-term missions, and they have an orphanage there and have just done a great work for the Lord there. Uh, When he's in the States, he often has, like, super long hair, and every time he goes back, he just buzzes it all off. Because in that area, wherever it is, it's just, it's a connotation that uh, is is really um, offensive, and it's, it's bad for the area that he's in, and it cuts off opportunities for the gospel to go forward. He's brought other people with, uh, with him, and there are also certain requirements for women and uh, things that, that will limit your opportunities. But this is a, a simple example of, of some of the ways that he has tried to assimilate into the culture for the sake of the gospel. He's not said, well, you know, they'll understand because, you know, I'm an American. He said, no, I'm going to eliminate everything that could possibly hinder the gospel from going forward. Paul speaks about this in depth in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Why don't you flip over there? Here's Paul's example. He lays it out for us. First Corinthians chapter nine, verse 19. Paul speaking, he says this: "For though I, I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them." Let's just stop with that first verse there. What Paul says is, I have complete freedom. I can do whatever I want, but what I've done is restrain myself and I've put myself in the service of others. I had the ability, the possibilities, I had every opportunity, he says, but I've decided that I'm going to look around and see 
Who can I serve? I've placed myself as a servant of all. Reminds us of Christ. I've come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. This is the mentality. We see this in the great Christ hymn in Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes there of Christ, quoting an ancient hymn, one of the, one of, probably one of the first hymns that the church ever sang. Though he was God, he put off all of his glory, humbling himself, taking, coming in the likeness of man, taking the form of a servant, being obedient even unto death even a death on the cross. You see, this is, this is precisely the message of the gospel. Paul is acting like Christ. He's saying that although he, Christ had all freedom, all glory, all power, he said, I see that there's a need, and I'm going to make myself a servant of all. I'm going to come, and I'm going to put my love on display. Here's the message that Paul continues with in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. For though I am free from all, verse 19, I have made myself a servant of all, servant to all, that I might win more of them. Then he gives an example. To the Jews, verse 20, I became as a Jew in order to win more, to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Then he has this parenthetical remark, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. He says, I'm not under the law, but I'm going to to come in and to take on practices that would help me reach them. Verse 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Now that's a super important parenthetical note, because what he says is, to those who are not under uh, the law, those who are not trying to keep God's rules, going outside, it's like, oh, you know, I'm going to go out, I'm going to be with, uh, w- with those who Jesus hung out with, the sinners and the, and, you know, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. Jesus was out there with everybody who was all messed up, and he loved them all, but yet he didn't partake in the things that they were partaking in. And Paul says, that is the case for me too. I'm going to be out there hanging out with people who are broken, who are messed up because they need help, but I'm not going to go out there and participate in the things that they are participating in. I'm going to cultivate relationships with those who are using drugs without me saying, oh yeah, let me show you how cool I am. I'm going to like, I'm the same as you. Let me use some drugs with you. He's, he's, not, he's saying, I'm under the law of Christ. I'm not going to act outside the law. I'm going to, oh yeah, let's go out and we'll get super drunk together. He's saying, I'm not going to do that either. I'm under the law of Christ. It's Christ who compels me. He's operating in a way that people might see Christ in him. Verse 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Verse 22, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. Just consider that for a second. I think that's one that we all need to listen uh, more carefully about. It's okay to be weak, and it's okay to show weakness. 
oftentimes we're trying to protect and trying to guard ourselves and trying to put our best foot forward so that people would see that we're okay, that we've got it together. But it's okay to show weakness. It's okay to put that on display. It helps other people see that you are like them, that you have these characteristics. But more importantly, it's Christ who said, in your weakness, I will be your strength. You don't need to be strong. It's precisely in your weakness that you will have the most effectiveness. Weakness is the way. So we can go out confidently knowing that we can be humble, weak, broken, but yet strong and victorious at the same time through Christ. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Paul says, I'm going to do whatever it takes to remove any hindrance to the gospel. I'm going to to learn and grow. I'm going to try to adapt the language. I'm going to work in the culture. I'm going to try to, to do whatever I can to give me the greatest hearing before the group that I'm going to speak to, the culture that I'm in. This is the challenge for you and I. As missionaries, all of us, you're all missionaries, because this is the message of the gospel. We've been sent on the great co-mission that Christ has given to the apostles in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He's given to you and I in, Acts, or in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. We are in this together with Christ. We are sent out, empowered by his Holy Spirit, to help people meet Jesus, have freedom. As missionaries, this is our job. To become all things to all people, that by all means, the gospel will go forward. People might meet Jesus. This means the way that you make your decisions, the way that you live your life, the things that you buy, the things that you put on display, the way that you handle your social media, all of these things are subject as missionary opportunities because people are watching. And you're either going to leave a mark with your identity, you're going to leave a mark with your glory and your fame, or you're going to leave a mark that points to Christ. You've got to live in a way where you are on mission with Jesus. People will meet Jesus when they see the slow, long trajectory consistency of your life. When things are falling apart all around you, but yet you're not shaken. Sure, you might be rocked in the boat a little bit, but Jesus is in the boat and he can speak to the storm and calm it in a second. God's called us all to live in such a way that people, they might see Jesus clearly. 
And so Paul's thought here is why should Timothy not be circumcised to win the circumcised? Like we've got to go in there. Right now we have no opportunity. And so we've got to do this in order to have access. So Timothy, he is circumcised in order to show that he's not rejected the God of Israel. To put that clearly on display, because that in itself, that statement is true. And so they go on their way, verse 4. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. And so they take this letter, uh, the letter that they were uh, supposed to take to the other churches, they take it with them, this uh, information from the council in Jerusalem regarding their thoughts on uh, the responding to the attacks from the Judaizers trying to get people to be circumcised. They take this letter with them and deliver it into these Jewish synagogues and, and, uh, and these different groups of Jews there so that they might also see that there is no need to find their righteousness in the Old Covenant, but that only Christ is where we find life and peace. Now, Paul and, uh, and Silas and Timothy, this isn't something that they were commanded to do. They just thought, like, the, these Judaizers, they've probably made it w- this way back through the city, so we're going uh, to keep working alongside them and, and tracking along their course. Um, you know, and that, that teaching was um, upsetting enough that they had to call this council for it. So Paul and Silas really wanted to make sure that it was clear uh, that there was a unanimous decision with the church on this, that we're all working together in the same effort. And so they go back through, they deliver the, the letter to those who are in these cities. And then verse 5, So the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So the result of the church working together in the Jerusalem council, trying to come to a unanimous decision over this, uh, it, it results in the work of the gospel going forward. It results in growth in the church. Many people meet Christ because they are preaching a gospel of grace. And I, and I think it's important for us to, to hear to understand, to recognize that this is the gospel that we stand in. Because again and again and again and again, we live in a merit-based society. We live in a society where, you know, a lot of you guys are going to classes and you're putting in the effort and then they tell you how good you are based upon some random piece of like report that you get back later that says like you are worth this much or this much. And they're trying to, uh, to give you your worth on a piece uh, of, of this report. And too often, 
we find our identities in those things. And because we live in this merit-based society, that's how we tend to live our lives. But that's not the way that the gospel works. The gospel tells us that there is a law that we have to keep. There are merits that we do have to keep, but we've fallen short that we cannot keep them. There is a command to keep it, and there, there, it, we do live in this merit-based uh, culture within, within uh, Christianity. But the message of the gospel is that we, we can't keep it. And that only Jesus kept it once and for all, for all of us. And so we have a perfect record when we trust in Christ for salvation. When we see that he is the only one that has ever fulfilled the law completely, in total. And that when we look to him, when we trust in him for salvation, he takes his record and he applies it to us. And he gives our record of failing, of sin, and he receives the punishment for that at the cross. You see, that puts the love of God on display because it says Jesus loves you enough to come into this world, to live a perfect life on your behalf, to demonstrate his love toward you when he went to the cross in your place to pay a penalty that you should have received when all along he was fine, he didn't need to step in. He had all glory and all power, all freedom, but looked upon us and said, there's a problem, and I love these guys, and I'm the only one that can fix it. He inconvenienced himself for our sake. He sacrificed for our sake. And so we don't have to keep this law for righteousness because he's given us it freely. But we recognize him as our Lord, our Savior, our King when we trust in him for salvation. It's a radical, radical thing that Christ has done for us. It's so, it, it's so clear why when that is proclaimed... We find in, in verse 5 that the churches are strengthened in faith. They increase in numbers daily because it's good news. They don't have to worry about this idea of the circumcision and going through, like, keeping all these, like, nitpicky laws about what, what animals they can eat and which animals they can't eat and, you know, what days they can work and how long and when are the festivals and make sure you're keeping all the... It's, they, they don't have to do that for salvation. They can know for certain, absolutely, that Jesus loves them because he has demonstrated it at the cross. They can know for certain that when they, when they die, that they will see him face to face. There's no other religion no other line of thought in this world that provides that level of clarity, that level of certainty. We can see it demonstrated. It's the gospel of grace. And it's extended to you and to I freely. And so we want to take hold of it. We want to receive it. We want to stand in it. 
We want to operate from that place because we're now we're going to have to have we're going to make decisions. We're going to learn to live in such a way that we leave a mark that puts God's glory on display and not our own. He must increase and we must decrease. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for your faithfulness to us. We're so thankful that you've given us your wonderful son. And Lord, now we want to respond. We want to say thank you. We want to, to tell you that we love you. And so, Lord, would you work in our hearts? Would you show us, Lord, the things that we need to change, the things that we need to submit to you? Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you be applying these things to us? Lord, you're drawing us into that relationship with you. Nothing that you do is an accident, Lord. All things work together for your good, your purposes in our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that you would have your way in us now as we respond. We love you. Amen.